Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. I'm Farah, and today I'm in conversation with John Lockley, a South African traditional shaman and healer in the Klosa lineage, which is also the lineage of Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And we're so delighted and honored to have you here today and to speak about traditional shamanism and to speak about the spirituality that is so needed in our modern world. So I thought I would start by asking you, you've written a book, Leopard Warrior, you travel around the world. When you meet people and talk to them, what do you see is the biggest challenge facing people today? The biggest challenge is that people are not listening to their spirit. They're listening to the egos or their personality. So the biggest challenge is for people to drop into their heart space and drop into that space of immortality, which is residing in the heart. And that's called the soul. It's called the spirit. And it's a quiet place. And it's a place that you have to really listen to. And unfortunately, a lot of people are listening to the personality or the ego which is seen in the rampant social media that we see nowadays. And the sadness with that is that no matter how much you feed the ego or the personality, it's never enough. And, and it's also short term because eventually the personality dies and it dies even when we're alive. It has all kinds of death, the personality or the ego. So what's really important for people nowadays is to tune into something which is more solid and that's their own spirit. And, and the way we do that is through, is through listening, through prayer, and through connecting more with nature. Can you speak a little bit about prayer? Because I, you know, it seems that some people have a complicated history with religion, and prayer might have some connotations that people don't resonate with. But I think in its essence, what you're talking about is probably more in tune with reverence. Uh, well, I think the word is prayer, um, but it's not prayer in a religious sense. It's prayer in a sense of mindfully speaking to the divine, which could be termed prayer. So to mindfully speak to the divine in a traditional or indigenous way is to say your name and then to call on the great spirit and call on nature to come and be with you and also to, to stand up as a human being and saying you are ready to be taught by the spirits or to be taught by nature so that you can transform your own gifts and your own humanity. Because in, in our traditional way and in the, in the way of the Kosa people in, in South Africa, everybody is born human, but you have to choose to become a human being. So to become a human being means to listen. It means to pray and give thanks to your ancestors for giving you this, this human body, for giving you this, this, this human life. And then to listen to the wind and listen to the spirits of the land, which means to listen beyond your personality and your own needs and wants, but to listen to that heartfelt place, 
which connects to the pigeon in the park, connects to the leaves in the trees, connects to the animal world. And once you listen in that particular way, then you start to evolve and transform yourself as a human being and also transform the world around you. So this is the way we are all called. We're all called to stand up and to become human beings, which means to take responsibility for all the feelings you have inside you, the good and the bad, and to also make peace with your own shadow. Because nowadays the world is at war because people are blaming one another for their triggers, their emotional triggers. So in order to become a human being, we have to stand up and ask the great spirit to teach us and to take responsibility for our shadow and the pain and the sadness that's inside us. There was a lot to your answer. So part of being human is taking responsibility rather than projecting our, our emotional, our emotions outward and, and coming to terms and in terms of inner reconciliation. That's right. I mean, you know, when I was born in the seventies, I was born surrounded by a triangle of war and that triangle was right in my own space, my own home space. What I mean by that, I was born into apartheid South Africa, below Table Mountain, Cape Town. And, um, and my mother comes from Ireland. And she used to be on the phone to family members in Ireland. And there was a war in Ireland, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where the bombs were being dropped. And then my father comes from Rhodesia, well now it's called Zimbabwe. And when I was born, there was a terrible war in Rhodesia, which was called the Bush War. And my uncle was a senior military um, officer in that war. So around me, as I was growing up, I was very aware of war and I was very aware of the pain that it was being inflicted on people. So I made it my personal journey to understand war and to find peace, in particular in South Africa, because I saw apartheid as a young child and I hated it. And all I wanted was to find peace and equality and where people treated each other with a little bit more dignity. So after doing my research many years and studying and going around the world, it was very clear for me that war outside starts from the war inside ourselves. And it starts from us not owning our own pain, but projecting it onto others and blaming other people, blaming our parents, blaming our family members, blaming our loved ones, blaming our mothers and fathers and our girlfriends and blaming our leaders for the pain we have inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when I hear you speak about war, I know a little bit about your biography from reading it on your website. Is that what led you to Zen Buddhism? Um, what led me to Zen, yes, was, was working in a military hospital in South Africa and, and, and then experiencing one of my, my, one of my patients dying. He, he was dying every day and they turned off the machines that were keeping him alive. And, uh, and then he started to die. And one of my jobs was as the medic on duty was to feel his pulse and to do vital observations on him. And so I watched him die for six weeks and he was only a few years older than me. He was 21. I was 18. And before they turned the plugs off on, on his life support, before that happened, his mother used to ask me every day whether I thought her son was going to live or die. 
That would have been very difficult to see at such a young age. Exactly. So it pushed me into an existential crisis and, um, and looking for answers. And the first thing that drew me to Zen Buddhism was the pursuit of the question, what is suffering? Which is one of the primary questions in Buddhism. And why do we eat every day? And what was your face before you're born? And what is your face going to be when you die? So that was my, those were my riddles. And mm -hmm. then I found a Zen master who came to South Africa during the height of apartheid to teach people. And he came from the United States. And his name was Zen Master Subong. He was originally from Hawaii. And, and he, was, uh, he was ordained in South Korea. Uh, so he was a Zen master from South Korea. And, and then he started training me and teaching me. And, uh, and then I followed him to South Korea with the idea of possibly becoming a Zen monk. And during the three-month Kyoche or the three-month silent retreat, it was very clear for me that I needed to leave South Korea, go back to South Africa, vote, vote for Nelson Mandela, find a teacher and become an African priest, become a Sangoma. Now, what, tell us a little bit about the um, initiation and apprenticeship that's part of traditional shamans. A key part in traditional shamanism is the calling. You don't decide to become a shaman. In fact, no one wants to really be a shaman because to become a shaman in a traditional sense means to come close to death. So in South Africa, no one really wants to become a Sangoma because they know that Sangomas suffer a great deal and also that the Sangomas get what we call the calling illness, which is part of the international shamanic calling illness, which in our culture we call the Twaza illness. And it's the calling illness to become a Sangoma or to become a shaman. And this is found all over the world in traditional cultures. It's found in Siberia, it's found in South America, India, Korea. And this calling illness is where you physically get sick and it's not psychosomatic, but as your body starts to disintegrate and get weak and get sick, you also become very, very psychic and see the future. And where it gets dangerous is your physical body gets so weak and your immune system gets so weak that you get you are very susceptible to, to illnesses. So this is what happened to me. I got hepatitis, I got tick bite fever, glandular fever, um, dysentery. I got all kinds of illnesses for seven years. And where it gets dangerous is that one of those illnesses can take your life because your immune system is so weak. So the calling is to accept the training to become a shaman or a sangoma and also to find a teacher who can train you and what the training involves or what the initiations involve is you accepting the calling to become a Sangoma, number one. And number two, where your teacher is part of a lineage that goes back, in my case, the lineage goes back for hundreds and probably thousands of years. And she calls on the lineage to accept me to be her apprentice and also to heal me. And I, in turn, accept to become a Sangoma and to allow those spirits through me. And so it's a bit like becoming a monk, but a lay monk in an African sense. So it's about like taking vows, but doing it in a kind of a natural setting as opposed to um, reading a book and that kind of thing. 
So once you, you accept the calling and once the teacher baptizes you and brings you into the lineage, then the symptoms start to abate and the physical body starts to heal and, and then you start to get stronger. And the visions keep coming, the dreams and the visions keep coming. So this is what's happened to me and this is why I'm in the United States because my visions and my dreams have led me here to help people reconnect with their own spirits, with their own natural life force, with their own ancestors, with their dreams. And how do you do that? Are there certain practices or rituals or ceremonies that you use that help people to connect with their own ancestral blood and yes. lineage? Yes, there's lots of there's ceremonies, but the most important ceremony is the ceremony of the individual asking to be shown their destiny. Where an individual accepts their humanity and calls to go deeper with their human gifts. So they're asking the great spirit or the great mother to show them the, their destiny, their vision of their life. And a part of that ritual or that ceremony is also where the individual takes responsibility for their shadow, for the mud, for their own darkness and their own pain. They take a responsibility to feel their emotional body and not, I repeat, not project their emotions onto others and blame other people for their sadness. So that is about maturity and that's about becoming a human being. So that's the first step and I call that Ubuntu, the way of humanity. So it requires a, a willingness to be shown what our destiny is rather than, you know, maybe what our culture tells us and what our personality tells us in terms of shaping our future. And also this responsibility for the harder parts in terms of our emotional world and the things that we might, the inner conflicts that might be present within the human heart. Yes, I mean, it's, it's the same as all traditional cultures, what I'm doing. I mean, if you look at Indian culture or yogic culture, you, there's an emblem in yoga, which the Western people are familiar with, and that's the lotus flower. But here's the thing. The lotus flower feeds off the mud, feeds off the shit, feeds off fertilizer. And when nature deems it's correct, it flowers. Not where the lotus flower says, I want to flower. When nature says it's absorbed enough fertilizer and enough mud, then it blossoms. It's the same thing with a human being. If, you, if a person is not willing to look into their shadow and their darkness and their pain, I can't work with them. And I don't want to work with them because they are volatile, they're dangerous, and they're not someone who wants to connect with their humanity. Mm-hmm. So ceremony, and I know the other thing that um, you use a lot is dreams. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of dreams and the guidance that they can give us? Well, the most important things that dreams do is they give us a sense of our soul. They give us a sense of that part of us which is immortal, that part of us that still exists when we die, and that part of us that still exists before we are born. So the dreams are a gateway to that space of immortality. That's why they're important. And we have an old proverb or an old saying, 
amongst the Kosan Zulu people in South Africa. And it goes like this. If someone doesn't remember their dreams, we say that they have an illness because they are not connected to their soul. And if someone is not connected to their soul, then they are putting themselves and their community in danger because they might act in ways which are inhumane. So if that happens where people are not remembering their dreams, then they are sent to a sangwoma like myself to work with herbs, prayers, and some rituals to help them to bring their dreams back so they can see that space beyond this life. So they can see that space of their own spirit, their own soul. Mm-hmm. And are there, in addition to connecting with the immortal part of ourselves, are there uh, messages and symbols that can be interpreted from our dreams? Yes, of course. I mean, Jung and Freud spoke a lot about that. However, um, I think one of the biggest areas of Freud and Jung is to do with dreams, to do with the personality and, and your story. But Jung started taking it into more of the shamanic or mystical realm in his theory of the collective unconscious and the whole realm of synchronicity. So once you enter that realm of the collective unconscious and synchronicity, that's the realm of the mystic, that's the realm of the shaman, and that is the realm where we connect to that part of us which is connected to the flower, to the animal world, to the lotus flower, to nature. And that's that space where we connect to our spirit, to our own soul. And in traditional um, shamanic circles, in traditional Sangorma circles, the first thing we have to connect to is our own soul, our own spirit. Not your spirit guide in terms of the wolf or the animal or even your ancestors. The first, the first journey is the journey to connecting with your own spirit. And the way we know that is through the particular kinds of dreams that clients or students will come to us with. And what do you mean the particular kinds of dreams? Well, these soulful dreams, these mystical dreams have a particular look to them. They have a particular kind of electricity to them. And it means that people have to be very mindful. They have to stop. They have to listen. Mm-hmm. And this is the challenge for the modern man. And that's why I'm doing this work because I'm saying, how badly do you want to wake up? If you want to wake up, you have to remember your dreams. As we wake in our dreams, we wake up in the waking world. Mm-hmm. But this requires a radical form of mindfulness, listening, pausing, waiting. And this is the big challenge, especially in America, because everyone's so busy. No one's listening. You know, you mentioned listening at the very beginning in the first answer when you talked about the importance of listening to nature. Can you speak about how that helps us connect with with ourselves when we're able to um, be more in touch with natural elements like water and wind and earth? So when you are looking at an animal, let's say it's a pigeon in the park, and you see the way the pigeon is moving, The next thing is you're letting go your own story and your own pain or your own issues. And you're watching something very beautiful in front of you, pecking away and, you know, eating the seeds. And the more you let go of your own issues and your own story and just completely immerse yourself in the world of this little beautiful creature, 
your own heart rate starts to slow down and you start to listen. Listening is the process of becoming conscious, of becoming mindful. So if it's a, it's a beautiful creature that opens your heart, like a little bird or sparrow or whatever the bird is that opens your heart, you are listening to the sounds the bird's making. You are watching the movements of the bird. And as you're doing that, that there's a sense of, of grace or reverence that starts to come over you. And that's a form of meditation. Watching nature is one of the oldest forms of meditation because we are called to listen. We are called to slow down. And we are called to look at the little creature, like the little bird in front of you, and just marvel with its innocence and its beauty. And as you do that, grace is bestowed on not just you, but the little bird as well. So important in our world today, where, as you mentioned, um, people are so busy and so scheduled. Um, I know that you also talk a little bit about digital technologies and their impact on the human electromagnetic field. Can you say a few words about the impact of digital technologies? Well, I think digital, digital technology is, is it's a gift and it's creative and it's wonderful and it has a gift side. It has something beautiful to it. And it's like all, it's like, it's like everything in life. We have to, we have to, use things with a balanced mind and a balanced approach. So, I mean, I've got an iPhone, I've got an iPad, and I think these gadgets are incredible. However, we have to learn to use the gadget, not let the gadgets use us. And when I'm saying letting the gadgets use us, I mean constantly being on your phone when you don't have to, just turning it off or putting on an airplane mode so that you can listen to your friends, so you can listen to the birds outside. And I think we have to start using technology in a more of a conscious way. So what's most important for, for us? So in this moment with you and me, the most important thing is for me to do my best to listen to you and to look at you. And my phone is off. My other gadgets are off. Mm -hmm. And this is the most important. In this moment, you and me, this is the most important. And I think all of us have to take responsibility for how we're engaging with each and every person we engage with. And if you don't want to engage with them, then don't engage with them. But if you decide to have a date or have a meeting or listen to them, put your phone on silent, to take it off, and just listen to that person in front of you. Mm -hmm. So really um, being in control of these technologies rather than being a slave to them in that way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they are addictive and they are sexy. I mean, I love my iPhone. I think it's the most incredible thing. <laughs> However, I also know that I must be careful of it because it's so sexy and so desirable. I must turn it off. <laughs> yes, of course, there's a time and place for uh, phones. <laughs> um, you know, are there any other um, things that you'd like to talk about in terms of the gifts that traditional shamans offer our world today? Yes, I think the most important thing is, in terms of indigenous people, is not to put them on a pedestal, because I've seen so many situations in the West where indigenous shamans are put on a pedestal, and they're treated almost like gods, and 
and it breaks my heart because there's another side to that, which is a shadow side where that could also be treated in a disrespectful way. For example, nowadays many people in the Western world call themselves shamans, but they're not shamans. So they are devaluing this ancient word and this ancient practice. Why? Because they want the power. They want to be shamans. So they call themselves that. However, it's much more honest if someone just called themselves an intuitive healer. But they're using this ancient term and they're misusing it. So what are they doing? They're devaluing these ancient practices that have survived for hundreds and thousands of years. So Western person, the Westerner, needs to take responsibility for how they're engaging with practices that are quite fragile from indigenous communities. Yes, and it sounds like from how you described your own initiation is that shamans are are called, not they're chosen. They're not. Yeah. You're chosen and it's painful and it's not easy and it's not glamorous. Trust me, it's not glamorous, but it's one of the most beautiful things in the world as well. What is the most satisfying aspects of the work that you do? I think the most satisfying thing is when you see a client who's been in pain for a long time and you sit with them and you tell them it's okay. It's okay to feel your wounds and to be upset. And you hold their hand and you tell them, speak to me about your pain. And it's okay to feel upset. I don't want you to talk about love and light to me when you're feeling so upset. Let's talk about the pain. And it's okay to feel wounded. It's okay to feel ugly or to feel small or feel smelly or feel unwanted. That's okay. Because that's also part of the mud of the lotus flower that we must suck up and feel. Mm -hmm. But don't become a victim to it either. Just feel your feelings and then call in the breath of life. Call in nature to increase your dignity and your self-esteem. And then I'll teach them how to do that. You know, one thing and something additional that I wanted to ask about is the use of plant medicine and how it may differ from how plant medicine is used in North America. Well, uh, we use plant medicine in South Africa and it's mostly non-hallucinogenic. So we use plant medicine in conjunction with prayer and calling in the divine, calling in the great spirit, and also using our own consciousness, our own willpower. And what I mean by that, where we as healers make the decision to connect or want to connect with our own ancestry, with our own blood and bones, with our own calling. And part of that is also accepting our wounds and our pain. So when we work with the plants, we use the plants to cleanse us. And we work with all different kinds of plants. In South Africa, we're lucky because it's got the second greatest biodiversity in the world wow. after, the, after the Amazon. Yeah, after, after the Amazon. So, so we're very lucky that way. So we've, we work with plants sometimes which haven't even been identified by scientists yet. That must yeah. be incredible to have access to such um, vitality in terms of plants and herbs. Yes, and that is what affects the dreams. And when we're dreaming about nature in certain kinds of ways, we wake up and it feels like you've been touched by a lightning bolt. 
And this is why I feel such a calling to teach people in the modern world in the West how to access those dreams and how to open ourselves in such a way. You know, we, we spoke, speak about it in South Africa and amongst the Sangomas as, you say, Torbega, Torbega Onyani Sikileyo, which means humility is everything. So humility is not being obsequious, is not being a slave, is not having low self-esteem. Radical humility is where we let go and we listen and we allow nature to touch us. Radical humility, that's a, a beautiful quality. Um, yeah. Very beautiful quality. Yeah. It's been um, so wonderful to listen to all the things that I think uh, your lineage has to offer the world today. And um, is there any last final words that you'd like to say about the work that you do or even the book? So here's my book, Leopard Warrior. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, I encourage people to read it, not just because I wrote it, <laughs> but because I, I wrote the story to share, share with the world um, to share a miracle. I experienced a miracle in my life. And that was how a white middle-class boy could be accepted by one of the oldest shamanic cultures in the world, the Crossa Nation, and be accepted with so much love and to be trained and to be made one of them. I mean, it was such a miracle for me and it changed my life and made me strong. And I wrote about this to honor my teacher and the Crossa Nation, but also to show people everywhere what is possible when you connect with your spirit, with your dreams, and you pray. Pray from your heart, pray from your bones. And that everyone has an indigenous spirit. No one is better than anyone else in this world. We have Indian people, we have Chinese, we have Kosa, we have Zulu, we have all kinds in this world. And everyone is beautiful and everyone is equal. And what I write about is is this beautiful journey and opportunity for each person to breathe into their heart, to call on their ancestors, and to look to nature and one's dreams as a resource and as something that can fill you up, not just for this life, but also for the next. So to inspire people. I wrote this book to inspire people. Mm -hmm. yeah. Would you like to read us a short passage from it? Yes. Um, so one of my favorite sections is when I call tracking nature, tracking spirit. And um, it was a section of dealing with my initiation. And the initiation involved going into, going into the sea and going to the river and going to the forest and, and making offerings and prayers and blessings. And then calling on the great spirit and ancestors to, to be with me and to be with the community who is training and blessing me. So let me just find that section for you. Let's have a look here. The second part of the book. Okay, almost here. Let's have a look. Here we go. So this section I'd like to read to you from Leopard Warriors called Nature as Divination, Tracking Nature, Tracking Spirit. 
The sun crested the horizon as mist rose from the wet road, creating a mysterious haze. The countryside around us consisted of thick bush interspersed with open grassland. Occasionally, Mumgrebu pointed to a plant and mentioned its qualities. As we descended a steep ravine, a troop of baboons crossed the road. We all shouted, Gamago! and honoured and praised our ancestors. The baboon, Imfenin Isikosa, is one of my animal spirits or silos, something I discovered after a number of mysterious dreams and physical encounters. Many Sangomas have baboon Isilo. This animal is one of the guardians of the plant world, and when they come to us in a dream, it is considered very lucky. They are the old men of the bushveld that depart their intuitive wisdom to us Sangomas, so we maintain the balance between the natural world and man. A large alpha baboon stood guard over the troop. My friends laughed and pointed at it as they felt it represented me and my upcoming ceremony, a lucky omen. We rounded another bend and roared, Amago! This time a troop of monkeys renowned as an Isilo of the Nguevu clan was crossing the road. This was a sign that the Nguevu ancestors were with us. Our animal totems help open the road for us, enabling us to fulfill our life purpose. They are a sign from our ancestral spirits that we are not alone and that our lives are blessed and supported by them. The physical road we were traveling represented our spiritual road and our earlier prayers had primed the ancestors to direct and guide us these signs of nature were also indications of how the ancestors wanted me to use my Sangoma gifts in the world. We arrived at the sea as the sun broke through the clouds and spread its inviting rays across the ocean's surface. Mangwevu stormed toward the sea like a general leading the troops into battle. The ancestors were waiting and she was anxious to start her prayers before the sun climbed any higher. I grabbed her ceremonial sticks and ran after her. We all greeted the ducks flying overhead with Tamago and waited for Mamguevu to open the morning prayers. The water lapped gently at our feet as our white garments flapped in the wind. It was cold. We watched the sea for signs. Then Mama began shouting amid the roaring sea and whistling wind. Tamago Banavadala! I honor and praise you, old people. I honor and praise my ancestors. When she paused, we all responded to her prayers with Tamago. Mama made offerings of tobacco, rose petals, and an assortment of herbs to the sea. As Mum Gwiver prayed and chanted, the sea seemed to rise up and take on a life of its own. It became a living, breathing creature with the power to grant our wishes or take our lives. We stepped gingerly on the cloak of her white foam with a sense of trepidation and excitement. So Mum Gwevu opened her heart and prayed like her life depended on it. She prayed to her ancestors, the Great Spirit and the spirits of the sea. She asked them to bless her family and bless my Sankoma Umguduso ceremony. She scattered whites and turquoise beads into the waves while chanting her prayers in a quick staccato fashion. Do you want me to carry on? <laughs> beautiful. It's beautiful. I think it's a great invitation. Okay. Um, 
to give us a little bit of a taste and uh, for us to use our imaginations, uh, how beautiful that scene must have been. It was beautiful and it was scary and it was beautiful and it was magical and it was scary all at the same time because it was so much energy and there were so many Sangomas and I was about to be initiated and that has a particular energy to it and it brings up a lot. And um, that's why I say the first step for every human being is to, is to stand up and to call on their human birthright, call on their humanity and to make a decision to become all they can be to connect with their humanity, which means to connect with your fear, your sadness, with your wounds, and to pray and to allow the strength of the natural world to help you to rise above your wounds. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. It's been so wonderful to hear you speak and hear the, the wisdom and gifts that come through your words and your presence. And, um, I hope that there's a receptive audience for you there in the United States and also for when you come to Vancouver. Okay, thank you. I'm really excited. I'm really excited. It's going to be amazing, Vancouver. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.